Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in quickly. Close the door. Close, close it. Know that you are welcome. Grab a drink, your usual choices, warm or chilled, as is your wont. Snacks, well... They are all laid out, but watch what you scoop. Just drop your coats, sweaters, at all hats, yes, or maybe you better hang them up. Yes, I am Lawrence Santoro. This is The Nook. That shadow on the couch is Mahler. Don't sit on him, the ink-black cat of The Nook. And it is time for another evening of conversation and tales to terrify. And tonight, well, tonight... We have two truly creepy tales on tap. I'm already a shiver just thinking about it. Well, you'll hear. Uh, okay, I was going to read a poem to you tonight, uh, but I have decided not to. I am going to go directly into the stories. Alex Collier, next week we will hear your poem, The Tamor. There it is. Okay, now. Let me lead you right up to the door of our first tale and show you in. Tonight's first creepy, twitchy tale comes to us from Ray Cluley. Like so many writers searching for the fetchings of their art, Ray says that he's always been a writer. Ever since he could form sentences, he's put them together to make stories, he says. He was six when he read his first story, The Blue River, on a local radio station— 
His first professional publication, though, was in Black Static in 2008. His published stories have appeared in various places, most recently in Black Static and Interzone from TTA Press, Shadows and Tall Trees from Undertow Books, and the recent Darker Minds Anthology from Dark Minds Press. His story, At Night, When the Demons Come, was selected by Ellen Datlow for her Best Horror of the Year anthology, and his tale, Beachcombing, was translated into French for Tenebre in 2011 and produced as a podcast for the Dune Steef Audio Fiction magazine. Ray also writes nonfiction, but says he generally prefers to make stuff up. You can find out more about him at probablymonsters.wordpress.com. Okay. Settle in. Here is Ray Cluley's Traveler's Stay. By night, the motel was nameless, the stuttering fluorescence of its neon sign only a rectangular outline of where the words once were. The light made the shadows of the building darker and gave moths the false hope of somewhere to go, collecting the dust from their broken wings so that a once vibrant white was now mottled and sulphurous. By day, the place fared no more favourably, the title of its sign was visible, Traveller's Stay, but so was the fact that it needed a fresh coat of paint twenty years ago. Flakes peeled like scabrous sores. In sunlight, the building behind the sign was more than a dark shape, but not much more. The drab monotony of its sun-bleached walls broken only by the repetition of plain-numbered doors. When Matt arrived... The hotel was neither of these places, but something in between. Dusk was a veil that disguised before and after, and the motel looked as good as it ever could. Anyone who came to the traveller's stay came at dusk. We're here, Matt said. He made a slow turn and bumped gently up, down an entrance ramp. A sheet of newspaper skittered across his path as an open V became caught in a wheel and was turned under it twice before tearing free. He pulled into a spot between a rusting truck and a Ford that sat flat in its tyres and noticed neither. Wake up! Only when he cranked the handbrake did Anne stir beside him, sitting up from the pillow she'd made of her jacket against the passenger window. The denim had pressed button patterns in her forehead like tiny eyes. A sweep of her fringe and they were gone without her ever knowing they were there. Where are we? Her breath was sour with sleep. Motel. Anne turned to the back seat. John, honey. John, her teenage son, mumbled something that spilled a line of drool and woke. He wiped his chin and sat up. What? He said. <clears throat> what? He sniffed at the saliva drying in the back of his hand. Matt released the steering wheel and flexed his fingers. He arched his back and shifted in his seat, 
eager to get out and stretch his legs. Anne was looking around. Here, seriously? Matt ignored her. There was a woman sitting on the porch enjoying a cigarette. She was leaning back in a chair with her feet up on the rail. She was wearing cowboy boots. Girl boots, Matt supposed. Black jeans and a vest top the same faded grey from too many washes. The door behind her was propped open by a pack of bottled beer. You want me to loan you fifty? Anne said. She can't be any more than that. It could have been funny from someone else, but Anne had never mastered that type of humour. She's not a hooker, Matt said. He was tired. His words came out the same way. And how would you know? The woman was attractive. Matt found a lot of young women were these days, but if he felt any lust, it was for the cigarette she held and the beer she drank. Hell, it was for the ease with which she did both. As he watched her, she brought a hand up to her mouth and inhaled lazily. She chased it with the tip of her drink. I don't know, Matt said. He got out of the car before he had to say anything else. The woman looked his way and raised her beer in silent greeting. Hi, he called back. Mr. Friendly. The thump of a car door behind him. Anne. Uh, We'd like a room, he said to the woman. You sure? Matt looked at Anne and wondered how much of their conversation the woman might have heard. We're sure, Anne said. You got any? Matt sensed some sort of bristling, but only from his wife. The woman in the chair merely shrugged. Twenty or so, judging by the numbers on the doors. We just want one, Matt said. Help yourself, she said. She said it differently to most people. Got the inflections all wrong. Do we pay by the hour here or what? John asked, slamming the door at the same time, because he wasn't brave enough with his insult. Matt heard him, though, and he'd told him before about slamming the door. Not for the first time he wished Anne's ex had gotten the custody he'd apparently wanted. Anne made a show of looking around the parking lot and beyond. It was a show Matt had seen before, and it meant she was looking at how he might look at the woman. Just one night, he said. Hope so, the woman said, getting up and going inside. That's how you do it, Matt thought, looking at John. Chicken shit. Anne was looking at Matt, eyebrows raised, waiting for him to react somehow to the woman's attitude. He made a show of looking around the parking lot and beyond. The sky had darkened to something like the colour of the woman's clothes. An occasional breeze tossed litter in small circles and swept grains of sandy dirt across the ground. From far away came the noise of a passing car, a long hush of sound as if the coming night had sighed. We are not staying here, Anne said. I'm tired, he replied. It meant, yes, we are, and I don't want to fight. I'll drive, said John. Not my car. The woman returned with a large disc of white plastic, declaring eight in big, bold black. It looked like a giant eye with twin pupils, the key dangling like a metal tear. Thanks, Matt said, stepping up to take it. Clean sheets, towels, TV. She pointed across the lot. Fending machines are over there. Thanks. 
Matt said again. He gave the key to Anne and grabbed the bags from the trunk. John kicked the crushed can and sent it clattering. The woman sat back in her chair and retrieved her bottle. She brought it to her mouth slowly, swapped it for the cigarette. Quit staring. Anne took one of her bags from him, more for the impact of snatching it than for any desire to help. She gave the room key back to him, so whatever it opened would be his fault. Good night, the woman said as they walked away, and in a dry tone, addressed to the floor, Don't let the bed bugs bite. It's going to be a shithole, John said. Matt smacked him across the back of his head with his free hand. Thought, fuck it. Hey, John and Anne said together, John rubbing it where he'd been struck. Language, was all Matt said, but mostly he'd struck out because he was fed up with the boy. There was no need to state the obvious. Of course it would be a shithole. You can't hit me, John said. You're not my dad. Thank God. Matt, Anne started. Sorry, I'm just tired, okay? Sorry. He wasn't tired, though, not really. Tired of driving and tired of taking John's crap, but not tired like he wanted sleep. In fact, what he wanted was a beer and a smoke and a few minutes on his own to enjoy both. Anne gestured at the door. A brass eight that was probably plastic, a peephole beneath it like a dropping. Matt fumbled with the key. The overlarge fob made it a handful. It was the old-fashioned type of key, one you turned in a lock. It turned easily enough. He could have opened the door with a toothpick. He pushed the door open. There were whispers in there, whispers in the darkness. He reached around the frame for the light switch. The first thing he saw when the light came on was the usual motel scenery. A large bed, nearly white sheets tight across it with a tatty blanket on top and a bedside table with one drawer. The drawer would have contained a Bible in the old days, but now it probably held dried balls of gum and cigarette burns. A TV angled down from the wall so it could be seen from the twin room as well, though the door to that was closed. Somewhere there'd be a tiny bathroom that didn't have a bath. The second thing he saw was movement, as a number of cockroaches scurried for cover. Their shiny bodies glistened in the light they tried to run from. One sped for the shadows under the bed, while another moved as if lost. One made straight for the open door. John brought his foot down hard but missed. The insect dropped down between two boards of the porch. Beautiful room, dear, said Anne. But she went in, slinging her bag onto the bed. Fearless city girl that once was. John went in ahead of Matt knocking him as he passed. He said sorry as if it was an accident and Matt had to fight the urge to kick the back of his feet into a tangle that would send him sprawling to all fours. John put the TV on and sat in the bed, looking up at a commercial. Anne opened and closed the drawer. Picture's shit, John told him. He glanced at Matt and added, shot, as an alternative. Matt dumped the bags and went to find the bathroom. He expected to find it between the two rooms. He found it between the two rooms. There was nothing there to scare away with the light, just a sink and a toilet and a mirror. The mirror was spotted with neglect that would never wipe away. It distorted Matt's reflection, darkened his face with blotches. 
Someone had smeared a fingernail of snot on it. Nice. He unzipped, lifted the toilet lid and pissed, tearing a sheet of tissue to wipe the mirror with. It wasn't until he was shaking dry that he saw the cockroach turning in the bowl. Its body span in the current Matt had just made, and its legs kicked in the air. It would never get out. I know exactly how you feel. He flushed it away, wondering how it had gotten in there in the first place. Matt, Anne called. Can you fix the TV? He glanced again at the mirror on his way out, wondering what had happened to the man he saw there. Back when Matt smoked and drank, when he was single... When he was playing and the band was doing pretty good and could maybe one day do better, he got into a fight with a guy because the man was yelling at a woman. He did it because it was often a sure way to get laid, and the woman looked good for that. Red hair, straight and long, good breasts, striking eyes. She wore a top that pushed her tits up, and her eyes she showed off with subtle makeup. The picture won't stay like it's supposed to, she said as he emerged from the bathroom. She tossed the remote onto the bed and continued pulling things from her bag. Instead of makeup, these days her eyes were lined with tiny wrinkles. She rarely looked at Matt now as she had back then. The way she looked at him now was like he was exactly the way she supposed. Her eyes still lit up when she smiled, but that was less frequent, and usually because of some TV show. The first time she came, her eyes had been wide and her mouth was a pretty O as if the orgasm had startled her. He hadn't seen that for years. Matt reached up and turned the TV off by the main switch. Fixed, he said. John muttered something Matt ignored, and Anne ignored the both of them. I'll get some dinner, Matt said. John threw himself onto his own bed and stretched out. Pizza! He's not driving tonight, Anne told her son. She didn't use the most supportive tone. Matt left, closing the door on both of them and resting his hands on the porch rails. He looked at the sky and saw nothing he hadn't seen a hundred times before. The words of the motel sign were invisible now, hidden in the glare of a surrounding neon rectangle. The yellow tubes looked like they'd been white once and then pissed on. Across the lot and a shorter length of an L-shaped porch, the woman continued to smoke and drink. Occasionally she'd look at the end of what she smoked, but mostly she looked at the ground. Matt took a deep breath. He hadn't had a cigarette in six years. Anne had urged him to quit. And so he hoped for some second-hand smoke. What he smelt instead, carried to him in the dusty air, was the welcome tang of marijuana. He filled his lungs with it, slight as it was. He watched as the woman released another mouthful of smoke, wishing he was near enough to breathe it in. He went to the vending machines instead. A couple of cockroaches, alarmed by his approach, hurried out from beneath the machine and raced past his foot, slipping under the door of room 12. Others congregated around a nearby garbage sack, bumping into each other and adjusting their course. The vending machine offered the usual candy and chips as well as some microwave snacks, though he hadn't seen a microwave in the room. He rummaged in his pocket for money and found only a couple of folded bills, the readout told him no change. He'd see if the woman could help him. She heard him coming and puffed a final time in her joint. She was stubbing it out and chasing the last toke with beer when he offered the money and said he needed change. Of course, she said. 
change. But she made no move to give him any. He leaned closer with the cash and she took it with a sigh. She stood up and stretched, pushing out her chest in a way that was all the more alluring for being unintentional, her hands at the small of her back until it clicked. He wondered how long she'd been sitting out here. Before he could ask or make any kind of conversation, she was stepping into the office behind her. For the machine, she asked, calling it slowly, lazily, same way she drank her beer. Yeah. She returned with a handful. It's kind of picky with what it likes, she said, examining all the coins. Great, thanks. She puffed her hair out of her face, brushed it aside when that didn't work. Anything else? Uh, Yes, actually. Uh, Do you have a microwave back there? Only I, I saw... Yeah, we got one, she said, sitting again. Just bring whatever you get and I'll nuke it. The gulp she took of her beer was an obvious goodbye. Matt went back to the machine. He fed it coins until it served him his choices and took them back to the woman. Can I help you? she asked. It wasn't like she'd forgotten seeing him already and it was disconcertingly earnest. Sure, he said. Uh, You can nuke these? He tried a smile. That's it. He wondered if she was a hooker after all. Um, She took the food from him and carried it back in, sidestepping over a cockroach that sped across the floor. It turned a circle and went back the other way. Where are you heading? she asked, tossing the packets into the microwave. For a ridiculous moment he thought she was talking to the roach. Nowhere. She looked at him, started the microwave. You got two minutes, she said over its hum. Matt laughed politely. Home, he said. Picked the boy up from his dad's, saw the in-laws. They want to give me a job. Not good? No. What do you do? He said it for the first time in years. I'm a musician. Words that used to impress every girl he ever said them to. Some pretended otherwise, but it always worked. Not anymore, she said. What? Not if Ma and Pa get their way. Oh, yeah, exactly. They just want what's best, she said. It was what Anne had told him several times until the drive lulled her to sleep. He'd probably end up taking the damn job. They were quiet until the microwave dinged. What do you want? she asked. I want them to leave me the fuck alone. Matt's surprise registered only when he saw hers. She offered the food that looked as plastic as its wrapping. I meant which of these is yours. He took it all without specifying, muttered thanks, and hurried back to his room. He expected Anne to give him shit about how long he'd been. Wouldn't have been surprised if she'd spied on him from behind the blinds. He braced himself for it. He opened the door and went in, dropped the lukewarm food in the bed, shut the door, said, Dinner, and then saw John. The boy was stood in the middle of the room, and at first Matt thought he was attempting some kind of prank. 
He wore a black cloak draped over his shoulders and had wound dark tape around his chest and waist. He flailed his arms around in cardboard tubes that he'd stretched black socks over. This was how Matt rationalised it. John's curved back was a shiny black that glistened in the room's light. Matt could see Anne's reflection in it, saw how she cowered in the corner of the room. Anne? What's going on? Anne shook her head and made wordless noise. She was rocking from side to side, looking at the thing in the middle of the room. John? He had wires sticking up from some sort of black hat. He was screeching, rubbing his extended arms up and down his legs as he crouched and then knelt. He leant forward on his elbows and brought his feet up behind, where they seemed to disappear into the cape that draped him. The head wires flickered back and forth like fishing rods casting line or like antennae. Yeah, antennae. That was it. The boy's knees opened and sprouted bristled limbs. His calves separated, spitting split shins into new feet. And still he was screeching. Anne was screeching with him. Her rocking had become easier thanks to something like a curved shield she had in her back. Her clothes were disappearing as if melting into her skin, only to be replaced by an oil spreading from her pores. Matt watched as her breasts distended and spread into a single band of blackened flesh. He heard things cracking in her chest. Her stomach swelled, then flattened and split into sections, and her newly segmented body fell forward, face down to the floor. The glossy shield she wore on her back separated for a moment and shook thin wings before settling back into place. Her hair fell away as two protrusions sprouted from her head, dancing back and forth erratically as they grew. Claws burst from her palms as she reached for John, for Matt. Matt retreated until he felt the door handle press against his back. John was now a huddled shape the size of a suitcase. He bumped his way around the room, striking furniture and hissing. Anne was turning tight circles on the spot. Matt opened the door behind him and rolled around it out of the room, slamming it shut. When a cockroach fled from beneath the door, he brought his boot down quick and hard without thinking. There was a satisfying crunch. He slid his food back, wiping the mess into a streak. The creatures in the room were hissing and fluttering and banging into things. Matt stepped back from the door, waiting for it to bump with an impact. The porch rail stopped him stumbling into the parking lot. He leant against it and waited. Eventually, the sounds inside subsided. He wiped his mouth, his stubbled chin, and glanced around to see who'd been alerted by the noise. Across from him, in a chair pushed back against the door frame, the woman sat drinking beer. She lowered the bottle and wiped her mouth as he had done. He stared at her for a long moment before she beckoned him over. Matt went with a quick walk that wasn't quite running, glancing back only once. Everything all right? She said as he turned the corner into her section of the porch. My wife! He didn't know how to finish. John, he... She nodded, got up and went inside. By the time Matt was at her chair, she had returned with another for him. She put it down beside hers and sat. Yeah, she said. That happens sometimes. She gestured for him to sit. He did. 
When she picked up her beer, she hooked another bottle with it and passed it over. Matt looked briefly at the bottle and took his first mouthful of real beer in five years. Anne had made him quit. Or rather, she bought near beer, which was the same thing. He gulped until his mouth was awash with it. It was delicious. How did you find this place? said the woman. I just turned off the freeway. I was tired. What's happening? It doesn't matter. She raised a leg and pushed against the rail to tip her chair back. She kept her foot on the rail and took another swallow of beer, leaning back in a comfortable balance. Even if I could tell you. They're fucking cockroaches, Matt said. He'd finally pushed the words from his mouth. I don't think they're at the fucking stage yet, the woman said. Gotta get used to it first. Matt shook his head. He was calmer than he should have been, but he wasn't ready for jokes. They are cockroaches. Mmm, tough little critters. But then so are we, right? She drained the last of her beer and set the bottle down with a row of other empties. From her angled position on the chair, she couldn't quite set it down properly and it fell, spinning. Matt watched as it slowed to a stop the neck pointing his way, and thought of games he played as a teenager. So the kid's not yours, she said. No, God no. He's a cockroach. She sniggered the abrupt laugh of someone drunk. She had been looking out into the dark, but faced him to say, Sorry. He shrugged. I was going to say asshole. Like his father... She asked the questions without seeming to care for answers, like they were rehearsed, or lines she knew well from a familiar movie. Matt answered her anyway with another shrug, adding, You know, she didn't even tell me she had a kid until we'd been together a year. Can you believe that? The woman handed him another beer and he slapped the top off against the railing. He brought it up to his mouth so quick for the foam he had his teeth. The woman winced for him as he gulped it down. She looked back into the darkness. You want to be a rock star, huh? She said. She smiled when she said it, looking his way so he could see it before it went. The bright lights of fame and fortune. Sounds stupid now, he admitted. They watched the moths beating themselves against the motel sign. Closer, Matt could see the words within the neon. He noticed the lack of apostrophe. Travellers stay. And wondered if it was true for everyone. What are you doing here? He asked her. Nice girl like me in a place like this? She spat an arching stream of beer into the parking lot. Hiding. Deciding what I want to be. I'm allowed to do that, you know. He held up his hand in surrender, though her tone hadn't been entirely aggressive. The woman set her chair down and rummaged in the front pocket of her jeans for a crumpled packet of cigarettes. Matt hoped she'd offer him one, and she did. When he looked inside, he saw a row of ready-made joints. "'You're a musician, right?' she said, seeing his hesitation as reluctance. He took one and gave the pack back. <laughs> "'It's been a long time.' 
She returned the pack to her jeans without taking another. If it's your first for a while, we'll share. She pointed to where the lighter lay next to scattered cigarette butts. A couple were joints smoked down to the fingertip length. Roaches, they were called, Matt remembered. This was a roach motel. He snorted a laugh. You gotta smoke it first, the woman said. He glanced over at room eight and wiped his lips dry. He sparked a flame from the lighter. The paper pinched between his fingers crackled and glowed as he sucked the flame down. He shook the lighter out, a habit he'd had long ago, and exhaled smoke in one, two, three little puffs. Good man, the woman said. Used to be. He felt lightheaded. It had been a long time. He passed the joint over. Thanks. My name's Matt. Amber. The cockroach ran a straight line across the edge of the porch, then turned and made for them on the chairs. Amber towed it aside gently, and it hurried back the way it had come. Matt seems to dream the sex, and when he wakes, he pulls her over onto him so he can watch this girl with long, unread hair fuck him again. And she does, and this time slowly. But then he's kneeling at the bedside, pulling her jeans down, and her panties, and he realises maybe he's still drunk, or still dreaming, or remembering something. He kneels at the bedside, and she opens her legs to him, and he stares at her sex. But this time, before he can stand plunge enter her before he can feel that welcoming wet warmth of a new woman a torrent of cockroaches spills from inside a swarm that flows from between her legs to flood the room dropping from the bed to the floor in inky waves scurrying over his thighs and groin and tangling themselves in the hair there when he tries to scream something scampers up across his neck and chin and into his mouth, bristled legs tickling his lips and tongue, wings fluttering against his teeth, and when the squat weight of it slips down his throat, he wakes up, gagging. She was at the window, looking out through the blinds. The light coming in was early morning and neon. It made her look hazy. You can go now, she said. She had dressed back into her jeans and vest, her arms folded over her chest and a cigarette between her fingers. He had seen that chest, kissed it, squeezed each breast. Even remembering Anne, what she had become, he felt little regret. He wanted to do it all again. He hardened under the covers, thinking about it. I want to stay here for a while. Outside, the motel sign flickered and blinked out. Amber brought the cigarette to her lips and blew smoke into the weak sunlight coming in between the blinds. It curled and spread there, grey and slow. Maybe this is my fault, she said to it. He tried to sit up to say something. No, she said. You should go. Be a rock star or something. He brought his arm out from under the covers to reach for her, but knocked a lamp down and it smashed. He felt clumsy, like his arm was too long. She merely glanced sidelong at him and smoked some more. Too late, she said quietly, and pulled the cord at the window. The blinds gathered up in a rush, 
and bright sunlight streamed into the room, blinding him. He cried out and crossed his arms over his eyes, thinking this was the worst hangover he'd ever had, until he felt how horribly bristly his flailing arms were, how slender. Maybe it wasn't a hangover. Maybe he was still drunk or still dreaming or remembering or something. But oh, that fucking light hurt! He rolled from the bed, marvelling at how easy it was. There was a strange new curve to his back, and... Oh God, he'd seen something like it before, hadn't he? He slid into the darkness beneath the bed, the shade like cool water on his thickening skin. She was saying something about how he'd had a chance, but it was hard to hear the words over the high noise he was making. And when she said something about his chance or choice or whatever... He had no idea what she was talking about because all he could do was hiss and turn on the spot as his back split and opened and new spiny limbs burst from old ones. I'm a moth. I'm a moth. I'm a fucking moth. But of course he wasn't. He never had been. It was easier to hide from the light than to seek it out. Easier to blame others for his lack of happiness than to risk being burned in the pursuit of it. The bed above shifted and bumped with him as he changed, but it grew more distant as he diminished and decided and became what he had always been. I guess you'll stay a while, someone said, someone who knew the way once but lost herself on purpose to avoid choices. She'd never be anyone or anything. He didn't care. There were things with him beneath the bed nudging the dust and scavenging waste. They had faces, these things, human faces, looking down at the ground as they bumbled around. He'd never noticed them before. He remembered, then, the one he'd crushed from room eight. Did it have a face like these? And whose face had it been? He flexed the wings he'd never used and scurried back to his room to find out, hoping whoever he found there would accept him for what he was. Behind him came the call of tiny voices he pretended not to understand. A bold writer, indeed, is he, who writes a tale of human-to-bug transformation, or, should I say, metamorphosis. Hmm? A good writer, indeed, is one whose metamorphosed critters scurry forth to become memorable in their own right. Thanks for that, Ray. Ray says he doesn't only write horror, that he favors it over other genres. That, he says, comes from writing what he likes to read, and also because he finds horror to be one of the most interesting, most versatile, most powerful genres in which to create, because there's so much that can be done in horror, with metaphor or when you watch a character deal with the nastier parts of life. As he says, we're all drawn to the bad stuff. Yes, didn't we all spend last Friday night glued to our televisions, watching that real-life live-action police procedural unspool itself in Boston? Hmm? 
Well, thanks again, Ray. We've got another one of his tales in the hopper, and we'll bring it forth soon. Traveler's Stay was read for us tonight by Kenny Park. Kenny trained in acting at Glasgow's Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, before he moved into video editing. Most of his editing work has been for television, he says, but he's also done the odd music video, feature drama, and documentary. You can contact him at kenny at kennypark.com, or you can follow his blog on FeedBurner. And thank you, Kenny. I want to jump right into our second tale for tonight because it is so closely aligned with the first that I really want the shivers from the first to carry on. So hold on to your chills and buggy shivers earned with Traveler's Stay because what we're offering up next is a complete apocalyptic alien attack novel begun, expanded, and concluded in just... 39 minutes, nine and a quarter seconds. So, grab a chum and hold on as you listen to a little piece called Bad Day. It's by our old friend, John Everson. I can remember the very first time I heard the news report on them. A commentator made a joke of it. Paul Hughes, he said, had a bad day today. That was something of an understatement, to say the least. Paul Hughes had just been fired from pushing paper, literally, the day after his wife filed for divorce. He made the news because, in the aftermath of this personal implosion, he was walking, no doubt, somewhat disconsolately, in the forest near Brave River. As he moped along a walking trail, some kind of insect attacked him. The commentator speculated that the buzzing sound of the creature at the back of Hughes's earlobe led him to jump, slap the back of his head, and consequently lose his balance to fall to the concrete walking path below. He ended up in the hospital after a cardiac arrest left him thrashing on the riverbank, with said insect crushed in a chitinous orange paste to the back of his head. It wasn't really funny, but I laughed. The poor guy lost his wife, lost his job, and now might lose his life because a hornet or something, quote, took advantage of him at the wrong moment. That was the last time I laughed. In the beginning, everyone thought they were some strange exotic breed of roaches, they measured about two inches long and, like the roaches of the Deep South, were bronze-tinged, dark as well-cured tobacco. They were quickly dubbed lunar roaches because they flew in clouds on the wind at twilight and descended on the city in a swarm that blotted out the light of the moon. What bugs flew at night? Nobody really asked that. The warnings went out quickly. Don't stray out after dark. Don't let your children stay out playing after school. Don't leave your windows open. Don't. 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 The media told us to hunker down and hide, because the killer roaches had come to town. Of course, they didn't say it that way. 
But while some of us laughed at the story of Paul Hughes flailing about and ending up in a coma because a bug dive-bombed him, we lost our sense of humor really quickly when swarms of them began to attack people on the streets at night. We didn't know what they could do at first, didn't know what they wanted. Initially, the concern was that they could carry some kind of virus or disease. Who would have guessed that what they brought us was so much more and so much worse? Kara, come inside, my wife shouted. Our little girl was only... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Five. Already, she was a handful. Sometimes I was glad that I had to go to work every day and sit in an office. While I lived for the hours that we played together, and she giggled and kicked and fought against my tickle bombs, I knew I could never spend the day with my baby and keep up with a girl. She was a handful of laughter and energy, while I felt like a slow-moving anchor of molasses shellacked in tar. I was tired after lofting her in the air a few times like a rocket and rolling about on the floor with her before pronouncing bedtime. I played with her an hour or two a day, while Jenna had her for the other twelve. The city was under alert now. For the past few nights, swarms of lunar roaches had descended on the streets in a bizarre attack of buzz and wings and biting venom. Those who fell prey to the things were taken to the hospital, but couldn't be revived. Neither did they die. The doctors quickly learned not to try to pry the roaches from the flesh of the bodies they brought in. While the victims were comatose when they came into the hospital with the bugs on their necks or skulls, when the insects were removed, the low level of neural activity dropped to virtually none. If you remove the bugs, you turn the patient into a human vegetable. But if you left them attached to the host, the victim lay in the hospital in a coma. The difference seemed negligible, but as we soon learned, the difference was great. Jenna slammed the sliding door like a shotgun behind Kara, and my little girl ran right into my arms. How's my baby? I asked, lofting Kara in the air like a juggler's bag. 
She giggled and screeched, kinked bronze hair flying in the air like her mother's had once. When I had the energy to lift and twirl Jenna around like so much paper. Now I'd be lucky to dance around her mother, let alone lift her. A combination of her own gain in stature and my own declining energy. We'd had Kara late in life, and frankly the kid wasn't making me feel younger, as people had promised. I felt every strain in my back these days as I twirled her in the air, and when I looked in the mirror in the morning, I saw every age line darkened by another night of worry when she was sick. I'm getting too old for this, I told myself more and more often. I didn't dare broach those thoughts to Jenna, whose pallid complexion and dark bags beneath her eyes spoke for themselves. She lived in the trenches of child-rearing. I only dabbled. Kara giggled as I twirled her in the air and asked again, How's my baby? Good, Daddy, she said, throwing her arms around me and then pushing off my shoulders to raise moon eyes at me. Knowing she had my attention, she said seriously, Daddy, there were bugs by the swing set. In another time, such a statement from a child would have raised an eyebrow with a smile. But now, today, in an age of lunar roaches that rendered their victims either comatose or vegetable, I spun my daughter in the air and ran my fingers up under her hair, praying with every pounding beat of my heart that I would find nothing beneath those copper locks. My hand met only the cool skin of a child, and I set her to the ground before slumping myself into a chair, exhausted from the onset of panic. My wife hadn't moved an inch during our conversation. She held her breath and when I nodded that everything was okay, she closed her eyes and put a palm to her chest. What kind of bugs? I said as Kara's moon eyes stared up smiling at mine. Ladybugs, she proclaimed, and ran into the living room laughing and singing, Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. If only the lunar roaches had been ladybugs. If only they had flown away home but they hadn't. Paul Hughes was one of the lucky ones. Apparently, as he'd slapped and fallen, he'd killed the bug before it set its hooks in him. He was shaken. He was physically injured. He was depressed by the disaster of his life. But he recovered from the bug's bite. Thinking about his situation, I bet he was later sorry for that. Then again, he never really had the chance. The news reported that he died of a heart attack just a couple days after regaining consciousness from his ordeal. His bad luck streak could have been legendary. The hospitals were quickly growing overcrowded with those who had not recovered. Instead, bed after bed filled with bodies that were neither dead nor, in any rational sense, alive. Oh, they laid there breathing, their hearts beat out a predictable circadian rhythm. But behind their eyes, nothing stirred. Within a week of the first lunar roach swarm sighting, the hospitals were out of beds, and emergency wards began forming in the gymnasiums of high schools and colleges. Nobody liked roaches, but few people were so afraid of the things that they wouldn't go out after dark. They should have been. The Luna Moths were legion. The true meaning of that struck me on a Tuesday night as I walked the five blocks from our house to the library. 
Kara had forgotten to return the Book of Five Cows that day after school and was distraught that if I didn't get it back to the library, she'd have a fine. Welcoming the opportunity to stroll through the neighborhood on a warm summer night, I took the heavily illustrated volume and started down the sidewalk. I was passing the park just a couple blocks down from my house when I saw them. A silver-white cloud rose like a mist from thousands of blades of darkened grass, and a sibilant hiss filled the air. In a moment, the sky was a mass of pinwheeling, shimmering dust motes. They ascended like a flock of startled pigeons. And then, after gaining their bearings in the sky, momentarily blocking the light of the moon from which they took their name, they turned their shivering antenna on me. I saw the shift. One moment the swarm drifted aloft, startled and unsettled. The next, they had a direction. And that direction was my head. As they began to shimmer towards me, a million lunar roaches on the trail of a new victim, I looked around for a safe place. I'd seen plenty of the creatures over the past few days, but never so many in one place. They turned the sky a slithering arm of silver, and its fingers were reaching for my head. When I saw the shadowed house not too far away on the corner lot near the park, I nodded to myself and ran. Where else could I find shelter? My ears cringed at the chittering sound that grew louder behind me as I shot up the flagstone walkway to the weathered old colonial like a bloodhound, determined to nab my quarry before the things behind me nabbed my back. And my quarry, in this instance, was safety. When I got to the doorway of the house, I found its entryway unlocked. I didn't hesitate in throwing open the screen door and diving in as a flurry of shimmering wings beat the air in a hungry hiss behind me. Many of them crashed into the screen as it slammed shut, unable to turn, and I breathed a sigh of relief on the floor as the soft crashes echoed in the air behind me. Wow, I whispered, tossing the thin, hardcover book on the floor in front of me. That was close. I laid on the floor for a couple minutes, breathing heavily and occasionally glancing back at the cloud of angry moss still slamming against the door behind me. Finally, I pulled up my legs and pulled myself into a crouch to see where I'd ended up. That's when I saw her. The owner of the house, or at least that's what I assumed she was, sat as still as a statue on the couch, facing the foyer where I'd landed. Did you see that? I asked. The darn things came at me like a swarm of killer bees. She didn't say anything. I'm sorry I let myself into your house like that, but I didn't know where else to go. I apologized. Behind me, the soft flutterings and keening insectoid cries and smacks against the screen of the door were abating. In front of me, the woman stood, still saying nothing. She stepped forward. Just let me wait here a second until I'm sure they're gone, I said, picking the library book up. Then I'll get out of your house. She stepped forward again. Her eyes didn't blink. Um, ma'am? I said. Fear began to grip at my bowels. What had I walked into? She put another foot forward, and now I began to panic. 
She moved with the halted stiltedness of a robot, still discovering its joints. And she hadn't blinked since the moment I'd looked up and noticed her staring blindly ahead from her seat on the couch. How long had she sat there, waiting for me to fall into her house? What would she do when she reached me? She was only feet away. I jumped towards the door and she changed direction to follow. There were still a few Luna roaches circling in the halo of light like moths outside the screen, but I didn't hesitate. I launched my way into the twilight and ran back up the street towards my home. Kara's library book could be late. I'd be happy to pay the fine. That was the night the hospitals emptied, and the churches, and the school gymnasiums. All of the places where the volunteers from the Red Cross and a wide range of other medical saviors had stacked the comatose victims on cots and blankets in hopes that someday they would awaken again. That was the night that they did. When I got home, breathless and confused at what had just happened, Jenna didn't give me time to speak. When I dove into the family room, she instantly pointed at the TV and whispered, Look. The news anchors were raving. Around 7 p.m. tonight, the victims of the Luna Roaches began to walk, but it's as if they're walking in their sleep. They don't speak and they won't stop no matter what gets in front of them. We've had reports from every part of the city. It's happening everywhere all at once. The scene is like something out of a movie. An hour ago, there were thousands of victims all in mass coma, and now... Now, the co-anchor lost it. Now the dead walk, she exclaimed. What do you think it means? Jenna said. She put an arm protectively around our daughter. I think that this is a really bad day. I was only partly right. It was actually a bad night. And a strange one. By morning... After frantic eyewitness news reports flooded the television stations and people barricaded themselves in their homes in panic, it had gotten even stranger. You wouldn't think that thousands of people could get up one night, walk out into the streets all at once, and then disappear while the eyes of millions were upon them. But that's what happened that night. The coma victims got up from wherever they lay, walked out into the street, and as the rest of us ran inside and panicked at their single-minded, staggering gates and blank, black gazes, they kept on walking. By the next morning, nobody could quite answer exactly where they had gone. On my way to work that next day, I drove by the house I'd hidden in the night before, near the park. The front door was wide open. I bet to myself that nobody was at home, but I didn't stop to find out. The chatter went on for days. The networks played an endless cycle of footage of blank-eyed men and women and creepily vacant children staggering out of hospitals and churches and walking down the center of the street, feet padding along, strangely straight, as they strode the dotted yellow lines out of town. There was one image that haunted me especially. They played it again and again. And every time... Inexplicably, I began to well up. There was nothing inherently wrong with the picture. It was just a little girl, maybe eight or nine years old. She wore a red t-shirt that had a giant thumbprint stenciled on it, 
and she walked down the street on the way out of town. Her hair was long and ratty brown and tousled in so many knots, the father and me knew they'd be hours to comb out and many yelps of hurt. I don't know exactly what it was about her. Maybe the way her big brown eyes drooped and looked hopelessly tired. Maybe it was the way she walked, listless and slow, but with a horrible, unrelenting purpose ahead. Or maybe it was the way she dragged her ragged, brown teddy on the asphalt as she walked. The stuffed animal had probably been her favorite toy days before, something she tried to feed and cuddle and hug. And now, its head bumped on the ground, silently thumping, 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 with each small step she took. Her hand didn't let go of its leg, but neither did she care that she was dragging the toy to death. Tears filled my eyes at the image, and I looked away. At that moment, a thrumming sound filled the house, as if it had begun to hail. Something was pounding on the shingles and the windows all around the house. Daddy, Kara said, running into the room. There's a bug on my bed. I scooped her up in my arms and took her back to the room, the noise still echoing overhead and all around. Somewhere, I heard glass shatter. There, she pointed, and on the middle of the pink Hello Kitty bedspread sat an abomination. At least two inches long, the lunar roach sat still, smack in the center of my baby's bed. Its wings shimmered with yellow light like a gold haze, and it crept forward as I entered the room, heading for the shelter of her pillow. I set Kara on the floor, pulled a tissue from my pants pocket, and brought my hand down on the bug. With a scoop, I enclosed it in the tissue and squeezed. The crunch of the thing's body was audible, and the warm wetness of its insides bled through the tissue to squish against my hand. I threw the mess into the toilet in the hall bathroom and flushed, rinsing my hands as if I'd touched poison in the sink. From the other side of the house, my wife screamed. Wiping my hands on my jeans, again I scooped up Kara and ran. When we got there, Jenna lay on the floor, arms clenched around herself in a desperate hug. When she saw me, she pointed to the living room window. They're getting in, she whispered. Sure enough, on the floor near the windows and streaming around the coffee table were dozens of lunar roaches. Stay here. Don't move, I told Kara and set her on the couch. Then I started stomping. When the room was a glistening mess of bug guts and broken wings, I finally reached the window and pulled the drapes aside. The glass on one of the side windows had broken, and insects were still crawling up and over the jagged glass to drop into the room. The room hummed with their high-pitched, ululating trills. I reached back and grabbed a throw pillow from the couch, stuffing it roughly into the hole that had been my window. Its threads cut on the edges of the glass, and when I was certain the room was airtight again, I continued my stamping campaign until I felt sure that every keening bug was dead. The carpet was a mess of orange goo, and Jenna still hadn't moved from the floor. Mommy's asleep, Kara pronounced and I realized that my wife had fainted. Let's put her to bed, I said, and with Kara holding onto my leg, 
I grunted, groaned, and eventually staggered aloft again with her mother in my arms. I tucked Jenna under the covers as carefully as she normally tucked Kara and checked to make sure she was still alive. Her slow, steady breath whispered gently in my ear, telling me that shock had sent her into more peaceful dreams than I was wont to have. When I looked up, my daughter stood at the edge of the bed, brown eyes brimming with salty concern. Her cheeks glistened, and I could see her tiny chest shivering with fright. Will mommy be okay? She whispered. She'll be fine, I promised. She's just scared and tired. Let's climb in with her and get some sleep, too, okay? Kara nodded. I scooped her up and slid her into the center of the bed and climbed in beside her. Once beneath the sheets, it didn't take long before I heard the long, slow rhythm of my baby's deep sleep breathing kick in as she clung to her mother's back. I thought about waking Jenna to make sure she was okay, but then decided she was better off to just sleep while she could. Lord knows I couldn't. I wish that I could join the two of them, but instead I lay awake, listening to the light rain of bugs battering against the roof and windows of my house for what seemed like hours. My ears magnified every creak of the house into the echo of an imaginary phalanx of roaches advancing on my bed. I kept itching at phantom touches on my head and legs and hands, driving myself crazy with the idea that a new attack of insects would descend to smother us there in the bed at any moment. At some point, long past midnight, the sound finally quieted, and the house grew quiet. I put a hand on my baby's shoulder and eventually fell asleep myself. It was the last good sleep I can remember having. Daddy, Kara said, pushing her tiny hands against my shoulder. Daddy, I'm hungry, and Mommy won't get up. I blinked heavy lids open and squinted against the glare. The sun was fully up in the sky and the room glowed with the searchlight of morning. Kara sat in the middle of the bed in her candy kid's nightgown, dark hair tousled but eyes bright as the sun. Daddy? She said again. I rolled over and hugged her, and then prodded Jenna. Nothing happened. I pushed against her back, and then pressed my head to her side. She was breathing. She won't wake up, Daddy. I'm scared. Let her sleep, I said, slipping out of bed and grabbing Kara in my arms. Let's go have some cereal and let her sleep. I tried to sound boisterous as I said it, but inside, my heart was dissolving like ice on the beach. I knew why Jenna wouldn't get up. A chill went through me as I thought about it. God, we'd slept right next to her. But I knew if I moved her hair aside, I'd find the shell of a lunar roach attached to her neck. I choked back a tear as I reached for a box of breakfast cereal in the cabinet, and Kara settled herself on a chair at the kitchen table. Jenna was not going to be waking up. Kara would probably never have her mom make her breakfast again. The TV was playing snow, snow on almost every channel. 
There was one local access channel still broadcasting, with a wide-eyed, disheveled man screaming into the microphone. They've come back, he kept saying. They've come back, and there's only one way to stop them. Aim for the head. It's the roaches. You've got to smash the roaches. As I watched him babble, the door behind him opened, and a stream of people entered the studio. They surrounded the man, who leapt up on a chair and grabbed a microphone stand, holding it out like a cattle prod. Then he began swinging it wildly, like a bat, again and again, until he finally connected with someone. The stand hit a woman right in the back of the head, right where the lunar roaches loved to fasten. The woman went down, but then so did the man. There were hands all over him suddenly, and a buzzing sound slowly filled the room. I heard him scream just before a hand covered the lens of the camera. And then that station turned to snow, too. There were still cable stations playing old sitcoms, but none of the local networks were broadcasting. The same with radio. At last I understood what they meant now by corporate canned radio. Only the FM channel, programmed by someone a thousand miles away on the left coast, still played the latest singles from U2 and Green Day, and I knew it was because they had programmed the schedule days before. Nobody was working the boards right now. For the first time since I'd seen the news story about Paul Hughes, I truly panicked. I felt the ice in my belly and struggled not to fall to my knees and tremble like a baby, in front of my baby, who was holding my hand and counting on me to be strong to make things all right. Except that I couldn't. Not even close. In the other room, Kara's mom was turning into some kind of a zombie in her sleep. And outside, the world was awash with buzzing, swarming death. There was no way out. Daddy, can I have more milk? Blinking back tears, I opened the refrigerator and pulled out a carton. I wouldn't look at the missing person picture on its side. Soon, we might all be missing. We're just gonna take a little ride, I said as I buckled Kara into the seatbelt. But what about Mommy? She quailed. Mommy needs her sleep. We'll bring her back some dinner later. It killed me to lie but I had to get her out of here. I had to get Kara out of the city. As we pulled out of the garage, I saw the door from the house open, and Jenna stepped out onto the concrete behind us. Thank God Kara was buckled in and couldn't look in the rearview mirror. Her mother looked ghastly. Her eyes were vacant. I hit the gas and squealed on onto the street. I don't know where I thought we were going to go. Somehow it seemed like this was a local problem. If we could just get out of the city and into the country, everything would be normal again. We never left the neighborhood. I pulled out onto Highland and turned onto Norfolk to get out of the subdivision. But a block before I reached the main road, the way was blocked. They moved slow, but they were moving. And they were moving inward. A barricade of bodies ten and twenty deep. They strode toward us, honing in. 
When one turned, all the others followed, as if driven by a single mind. And when I looked in the rear view, I saw they were behind us as well. Surrounded. I stopped the car to think. The bodies didn't stop. They came forward slowly, inexorably. Their eyes were dark and unblinking. I could see the tanned shadow of lunar roaches trembling on the necks of some of them as they stepped forward, one shambling shoe at a time. Daddy, Kara said, they're getting closer. Her hand gripped my shirt sleeve and my heart crawled into my throat. I had to do something. But what? I had no idea. I could try to plow the car through the phalanx of still seemingly human bodies, but I had no faith that I would get that far. If we left the car, we were doomed for sure. The mob stretched as far as I could see in every direction. Were we the only regular humans left in the neighborhood? Daddy, Kara repeated. They want to come in. The first one had finally reached the car. He was an older man, I guess 65 or 70. His hair was white as salt on his head and his lips thin as parchment. He leaned as pale, too slack face into Kara's window and leered, teeth exposed and rotten. The pounding began then, and from all around us, a hum began to wail. First, the old man began to smack his head against her window, and then from the back window, an answering echo, as one of the other lunar roach automatons began to slap slack fists against the glass. An answering thud joined from my side of the car. One old woman threw her body onto the hood of the car and tried to claw her way up to the windshield. When a gnarled finger grasped at the windshield wiper, I turned the control to full and watched the steel and rubber arm bat her tentative grasp away again and again. But nothing was going to keep them away for long. Kara held on to my arm tighter and tighter as the car began to shake. Daddy, what are we going to do? The metal of the passenger door suddenly creaked and squealed. The golf pin of a door lock snapped, and the plastic vanished to the floor. <sighs> I don't know what to do, I finally admitted, as the door wrenched open and six arms reached through to breach towards my baby girl. Daddy! She screamed. I pulled her closer, but the hands gripped the fabric of her shirt and pants, and then, next to my ear, the glass exploded. Another hand reached through the broken glass to bat at my head. Kara, hold on, I begged, grasping for her. But she was gone. From outside the car, I heard her screams. I dove after her to follow, but before I had my feet on the ground, a dozen fists pounded into my neck and back and shoved me to the asphalt. Through a field of swaying bodies and limbs, I saw Kara raised above the mob, and then Jenna appeared arms held out to take her. Mommy! Kara cried, arms outstretched. My wife scooped my baby up, and Kara hugged her tight. Jenna stared at me over our little girl's shoulder, and a look of victory flickered in her eyes. For the first time in my life, I was sickened by seeing my wife smile. But then, strangely, that smile grew confused uncertain. It turned to a frown. Her eyes squinted like they did when she got migraines. 
I could see the muscles on the backs of her arms begin to tense and shiver as she gripped Kara tighter. Then, she opened her mouth, not to kiss our baby, but to scream. I heard it clearly over the cacophony of the mob. That's when the lunar roach slid out from the wet cavity between her eyeball and her eyelid. Kara saw the bug and recoiled from her mother, but Jenna only held our baby tighter as the roach walked to the edge of Jenna's nose and poised there to stretch its wings. Then, my wife's whole face convulsed and began to change. Her skin crawled and swelled. Her whole body began to visibly tremble. Jenna's face exploded at that moment as the hive of lunar roaches nesting and gestating in her brain finally clawed their way free of her flesh and bone and took to the air. A cloud of blood sprayed the sky as her eyes and flesh caved in like undermined sand to the angry mandibles of a thousand trapping and buzzing bugs. As the first spurts of blood misted, a black and tan cloud of buzzing wings instantly hid the sudden ruin of her features as luna moths lit from her exposed flesh to swarm around the bloody mess of her eyes and the sticky, shredded cartilage of her nose, which hung by a thread down her face. I launched myself forward to save Kara, but the arms and feet of the mob held me down as my baby beat tiny hands against Jenna's gore-streaked shoulders, trying to escape. Against all sanity, her blinded, broken mother did not fall or let go. A buzz of wings multiplied in the air and a cloud of lunar roaches hovered like a bee swarm around my baby's screaming, horrified face. I screamed for her, holding out a helpless hand that was quickly stomped to the ground. Something in my arms snapped as it met the asphalt, but louder than my own cry was Kara's shriek. I swear that she called for me, but the street was alive in screaming and calls for help. Whether she called my name or something else, in seconds, it was all over. Kara lay quiet and still, limp and blood-spattered in what had been her mother's arms. But I knew, even if my baby never really did, that those were not Jenna's arms any longer. Lunar roaches darted across my baby's face, sampling her innocence with their nervous, hairy feelers. The crowd drew back from me, setting me free from where they'd pinned me to the pavement, and I stood up outside the car, cradling my arm and staring at the crowd of blank eyes that glittered like obsidian in the descending light. Silence fell like midnight fog around us, as the mob grew still, and the moment pregnant. What are you? I whispered. What do you want? One of the men stepped forward and tentatively opened its mouth. A growling sound came out, and then a word. Jest, it said in a voice like shifting gravel, its unblinking eyes fluttering at the sound, and it seemed to smile, understanding, dawning. Jest. Your legs, the man said, the words coming out slowly before it stepped forward. 
Its face looked pleased. Yes, your arms. And what do I get in return? I asked. Someone else growled. From above, I heard the fluttering drone of thousands of translucent wings. Where did you come from? I asked. The places you have never gone, came my only answer, a whisper from the crowd. And then the cool teeth of a lunar roach settled onto my spine. For a moment I struggled, hoping to throw it off. But then the ice slid through my brain, and I felt the world go quiet. As I slid back to the ground, I wondered what would become of my body, and of all the bodies that surrounded me. Normally in a symbiosis, the predator used the host to serve as a nest for its offspring. Oh, God, I cried as my body went numb. What would gestate and grow inside of Kara? What would hatch from my poor, sweet baby? What would climb out of my own swollen belly after I'd been used and used up? Or would they use me like Jenna? I prayed that the chittering sounds I heard in my brain would take any knowledge of that away. Already, I could almost understand what the keening, droning noises I'd been hearing now during the nights meant. Eat. Eat. Kill. Eat. Spawn. Paul Hughes was lucky. His bad day had ended a long time ago now, before things really did get bad. Mine was only just beginning. See what I mean? An apocalypse in under 40 minutes. That's terrific writing, John. Who would have thought Blateria had so many ways to subsume a human or take human form? Hmm? As I said after we heard the last tale John Everson shared with us, shake it off, children, or just let the quivers linger. Thanks, John. Yes, we did. We had his blood roses just two weeks ago, but Bad Day was such a natural partner to Traveler's Stay that I just couldn't not do it tonight. As mentioned previously, John was part of our old weekly writer's reading group, Twilight Tales. He's a Stoker award-winning novelist and short story writer, a multiple nominee for The Stoker. In 2004, his novel Covenant won... His story, Letting Go, was nominated in 2007, and his novel, Nightwear, is a current Stoker nominee. If you enjoy tales featuring the dark doings of the creepy, the crawly, the multi-legged exoskeletal among us, Bad Day 
is part of his chitinous collection, Creeptic. That's C-R-E-E-P-T-Y-C-H. That is now available on Kindle. Touch base with John Everson at his Dark Arts website. That's at www.johneverson.com. Or you can just go to the Tales to Terrify homepage and click on the link. Search for John on Amazon. You'll find quite a lot of his work there as Kindle eBooks. Many of them sell for a penny less than three bucks. So if he is to your taste, go. Jeff Lane read Bad Day. Jeff lives in New Hampshire with his wife and two children. He's the author of the novels This Paper World and One Way. He wrote the novella Crush Depth and has published a number of short stories. He podcasts his fiction at Jeff Lane Audiobooks, that's all one word, dot com. That's on iTunes and Patio Books. He says that when he's not allowing his dreams to flow from his fingers, he dabbles in the peanut butter and chocolate combination of call center operations and training management. You can find more about him, his books, his ebooks, his podcasts, and his upcoming film projects at Jeff Lane Online, all one word, dot com. And Jeff would like you to remember that if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is probably a cybernetically enhanced killing machine just waiting for the signal to go to work. And don't we all want one of those? That will do it for this week. Up and doing, bright and chipper. We are nudging our noses now into summer. Expect heat, humidity, and vacations to loom in our futures. You know, one of these years, Cecilia and I will have have a vacation. We'll pack clothes for several days, stay somewhere other than here. We'll get on a plane, a train, or lash ourselves into a car, get on a bus. Well, the last bus trip I took nearly killed me, but that's a longish story, so I won't say anything about it. Maybe this year we'll actually entrust Mahler and his companion, the lovely Miss Tabitha, to the care of friends who will water, feed, fluff, and scoop for them for a bit whilst we... (laughs) What is it you actually do on a vacation? Well, I'm sure there are books on the subject. We are supposedly going to the World Horror Convention in New Orleans soon. A city I've wanted to visit for, well, ever... I've written at least one story set there, so I should probably take a look at it. Of course, at conventions, I never actually see the town the Khan is in, never actually leave the hotel, so every convention city becomes part of that great worldwide Sheraton Hilton experience. Around Halloween, we are slated to go to World Fantasy in Brighton, England. Cecilia tells me I am going to book a longer stay than the weekend of the convention— Make time for a visit to some of my old haunts, Stonehenge, Trinity College, Cambridge. Peek at my old flat in London, 27 Clarendon Road, W11. Maybe, maybe even visit the Lake District and places north. Stop in, see Tony C. Smith up in Tony C. Smithville. See, I have to have something to do when I travel. I can't just go play tag with famous sights. Okay, look, I tell you all this as you dress for the walk home, just 
to keep your mind focused on the pleasures of bipedal life, soft-skinned life, life with an internal skeleton, red blood and not the greenish hemolymph of our skittery exoskeletal cousins with more legs than proper. So just shake your sweaters and hats before you put them on, and as you wander homeward, do so secure in the knowledge that it is not yet that muggy time of year when heat and rain drive the crawling critters out to whittle-waddle-dash across the sidewalks of night, or lie wriggling on their backs in the moonlight. So, walk home at your ease tonight. But when you reach home and bed, be aware of tickles in the dark, the tingle on the cheek, or the chitter by the pillow. Let None of these disturb your always pleasant dreams. <laughs> this presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedi Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.